And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about a true story. Um, yes. The Boys in the Boat. Nine Americans and their epic quest for gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics by Daniel James Brown. Yep. And it is a awful good story and a very well written book. Oh my goodness. Says me. <laughs> I, yeah. It's it's a funny thing for how many I don't know, he he weaves these elements together so well. Yeah, he does. You he feel does. like you're there. Yeah. Yeah, and who who to thunk, you know, uh rowing, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, the, the book is about an eight-man team of rowers. I guess it's nine with the with the guy in the end of the boat, what do you call yeah. him? Coxum or something like that. Yeah, it's funny you said nine, and I thought, oh yeah, yeah, Bobby, the guy in the end, <laughs> the little fella. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, for for that one person, it's uh, it's like a jockey. You know, it's best yeah. to have him weigh as little as possible, and uh, he just yells at people. So you need a a small yeller. <laughs> Yeah, because well, yeah, it sounds like all he ever does is say stroke, stroke. But once yeah. you read the book, you understand what everybody's role means, and so mm. then you realize he is the one who's constantly assessing and setting the pace and yeah. looking at what do they have to do and where do they have to be. Yeah, that was He's, that was a revelation to me, you know, as far as this goes, and and uh, yeah, I'm certainly going to appreciate that when I see that next, you know, whether it be in the Olympics or wherever. But uh, that person is the only one that can actually see what's happening. I never had thought about that yeah, before. Everybody, everybody else is faced the wrong going. direction. So <laughs> the only person that's facing forward is this one person um, who's yelling the orders. And, and he's the one who tells them how fast to go. He's the one who would decide, um, you know, we need to reserve our energy until a certain time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you want to row really fast. You want to just cruise, you know, he's, he's the only one in the boat who knows how far they are away from the end and how far they are away from the other boats, you know? So, yeah. so he's making all those decisions. Yeah. It's certainly a ultimate team mm-hmm. in that sense of, um, everybody's got to trust each other. Yeah. Everyone has to work together for the team's ultimate good. And that's part of the story that makes it so inspirational is watching one particular character and how hard it is for him to give up control in a sense. Yeah, for certain, for certain. And, and it's easy to understand when you read the story of how, who he was and how he got there, but it's it makes it even more vivid as to how important that teamwork is and what they can all accomplish together. Yeah. Yeah. And there is um, definitely a spiritual aspect to this. You know, if you know, just using this rowing as a metaphor, I'm sure we'll talk about it more later. But just mm-hmm. in what we've said so far, you know, these guys, eight of them anyway, are rowing without knowing what's ahead of them. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, they're following orders and they're like, I'm trusting that we're going to go to a good place here. And, uh, but that's only one aspect of it. You know, the other and, aspect is this selflessness that you talk about. And the coxswain mm-hmm. has to trust they're going to do what he says. Right. Yeah. And work together. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what he tells them. If they're not going to do that, they're not going to win. Yeah, that's right. So it's that ultimate look. Yeah. And so the story basically is about the building of this team mm-hmm. from the time they're all freshmen. Yeah, at I the mean, University the of Washington. Together. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you tell. Yeah, so they're at the University of Washington. Um, uh, this is going to be in the early 1930s, um, a few years before the Olympics. So, there's rowing is a big sport. A lot of people go out for it. Um, but the University of Washington's in Seattle. So, um, you know, uh, I can't remember how many. It seemed like there was 80 people, 80 to 100 people that showed up at the opening of the book to try to be on this team. Mm-hmm. And they would have three boats. They would have the freshman boat and then a junior boat and then the varsity boat. And the varsity boat 
is the one that w- could possibly end up in the Olympics in 1936, mm-hmm. you know, over, uh, you know, a span of years. So, um, you know, they, they would compete against other colleges and then uh, a team was selected to go to the Olympics, not, you know, people. They didn't select individuals because this is not an individual sport. Right. It is a team sport. So the team that would win the Olympic trials in uh, 1936 would go to the Olympics in 1936. Anyway, that was their goal. And Cal, University of California, kept going. <laughs> they, were yeah. the, they were the people to beat. But um, the book just follows uh, a few, well, th- there's a main character, I would say. His name is Joe Rance. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely talk uh, plenty about him. But it talks about his life. And um, in fact, he is the inspiration for the writing of the book in the first place. Um, the author met him. Um, and talked to him about this experience. And, and when they were done talking, he said, I would love to write your story. And he said, no, you need to write the story of all the boys in the boat. Yeah. And that's where the title came from and everything. So he was like, no, don't just write about me. You've got to write about all of us because it was an all of us thing, you know? So, um, So what else to say? So there, you know, it just goes through all of this stuff, you know, it talks about their coach, talks about the guy that builds the, the shells that they sit in the Mm -hmm. the boats, George Pocock, George Pocock. Yeah. Um, and then how the team was assembled and then there, uh, I, I would say, uh, probably the last third of the book is that last season where they're going through the races all the way to the Olympics and how they did at the Olympics. Yeah, and it's interesting because the every so often interspersed with Joe's story, it's mostly told from Joe's point of view. Mm-hmm. But the author does a really beautiful job, I think, of taking us on Joe's journey so that we're seeing it from his point of view. We'll see the flashbacks to what his life has been like, and it has been incredibly hard. I mean... Mm hard in a way that people can't really imagine very well today because not only did you eventually get the depression and all that, he was from a poor family. He experienced so much personal rejection in his own life Hmm. through no fault of his own. Uh, And he overcame all these various things, but as he's going on his journey and then eventually we start learning about the boys, the author kind of moves us into the team Mm -hmm. and then he moves us into the team mindset so that by the time they're at the end of the the trials and they're in New York and everything, there we're seeing the point of view of all the boys who are mm-hmm. suddenly looking at New York City going, wait, this is America too. Mm. And they're feeling that self-identification with something bigger. And they're understanding what it means to represent their country. And so we're all kind of then pulled into the whole thing. And then it's about the team. And along the way, we've been getting views into Hitler's Germany, hmm. Hitler's plan. And so the point of view that we're shown, or not maybe the point of view, but the person that's focused on there is an extremely talented young woman who's a filmmaker. And Hitler recruits her to, or, you know, his people do, to make documentaries. Hmm. And she is making Hitler's Germany look amazing because this is way before anybody knows anything about what's going to happen later or even what's going on at the time. And so by the time the two converge in Germany, we have a full view of everything and what it means for these boys to be there and to compete. Because Jesse Owens is there, and that's the one we always are told about and look at for look what he showed Hitler, and boy, did he. Hmm. But these guys also are important in that same venue because rowing then, and you were saying rowing was really important. Rowing was more popular than something like football today, which I found astounding. Yeah, that, I, I um, did too. That was amazing. Yeah, they, they do national radio broadcasts. It would be the primetime thing, all these collegiate uh, matches. And there was a huge East Coast versus West Coast problem because no one took the West Coast seriously. So they all had that chip on their shoulder too. Mm, yeah. um, it was really it was really well put together. He really pulled you along so that you learned everything in a way 
that mattered. And so when they're building the team and when they're running these races, that just sounded, would sound to me like the most boring thing in the world. Mm. And he puts you right there. So you really care because you care if Joe makes a team, you care if they win. And when he's going through the races, you care, Mm. you know, will they win? It matters. Yeah. I agree with you. You know, hundred percent. I do like sports quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this, this, you know, you, you, you look at it and you're like, well, you know, that's interesting, but, um, you actually <laughs> recommended it. Um, but yeah, I was really captured by it. And, um, I, I, I there, there's so many things that are going on on that boat that I didn't understand before. Um, yeah. but, but it, it does seem like more than any other sport I can think of, um, it's reliant on everybody working together, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, you know, so, so you think about, you know, baseball, for example, baseball is really a collection of individuals and they do have, you know, like, especially when they're in the outfield, not when they're batting, but you know, so when they're, when they're batting, it's actually one-on-one, right? Right. But then when you're out there in the field, you are working together and you can, you know, do some sublime double plays or triple plays and things like that. But it's still, it's nothing like what is required here. It's a complete giving up of yourself to a collective where Mm -hmm. you're, you need to be in unison. And, uh, um, I talked briefly about, you know, a spiritual thing, but there was this guy, George Pocock, like you said, he's the guy who would, uh, lovingly <laughs> build these shells. He, mm-hmm. he was like a, a high priest or something like that. <laughs> you know, that, that's the kind of way he was portrayed in this book. He was like, he was the, the religion slash philosophy of rowing was sort of, um, embodied in this guy named George Pocock, who would create these shells that these guys worked in and, you know, um, just make them out of, I think it was cedar wood and, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, he found the best wood, the right thing to make, you know, and he would, uh, varnish it and varnish it and, you know, they just kind of went through that, but it was all very poetic. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So there, there's a quote just at the very beginning, uh, Pocock says, it's a great art is rowing. It's the finest art there is. It's a symphony of motion. And when you're rowing well, why it's nearing perfection. And when you near perfection, you are touching the divine. It touches the you of yous, which is your soul. And that's just how this guy looked at it, you know? Mm-hmm. So now we have this religious aspect, but then you have this guy, Joe Rance, who, um, he's just an amazing person. <laughs> um, you know, they, they talk about how, uh, you know, I say they, the collective they, <laughs> mm-hmm. say that, you know, it, you get to decide how you react to things, Right. But if there was a person who ever had a right to just throw stuff in and say, you know, life is horrible and Mm -hmm. I really don't want any part of this or, uh, you know, I'm going to act the way I want to act, you know, um, because life has wronged me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, But yeah, this poor kid was, he saw his mom die um, of lung cancer and then his father married another woman. And uh-huh. this woman disliked Joe intensely. She was the evil stepmother. Oh my gosh. Wow. That was just tough. But there came a point where um, she said she didn't want Joe living there anymore. So Joe was 10 years old or something. Mm-hmm. And, and weren't they at a logging camp? Yeah, at the they time? were at a logging camp. And then, so the dad. <laughs> The dad brings him up to the schoolhouse and talks the school, the guy, uh, the teacher at the school, into letting Joe live at the schoolhouse in exchange for, you know, Joe will chop your wood and everything. I just, Joe, I just can't imagine. And then, yeah, I just can't imagine. Yeah. And Joe also has to earn his breakfast and everything yeah. by working. So he's 10. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, because the worst thing is, is that, you even kind of understand a little of Thula, that's the stepmother's mm. name, yeah. motivation at that point. She is miserable at that logging camp, and she's got her own kids, and she's misunderstanding what Joe is doing. 
Mm-hmm. So like, you know, if a kid gets hurt, she, oh, Joe hurt them. And, you know, Joe loved his uh, siblings or, you know, half brother and sister or whatever yeah. it was. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, but the father never stood up to her once. And, I, and I'm and i not counting her. I mean, she did this to him repeatedly. Yeah. She was not great. She had her own problems. But um, the father is the one I couldn't understand. Yeah, I couldn't understand that at all. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> my gosh. And this happened, this kind of thing happened more than once. I mean. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, so then they left the logging camp and um, tried to make it go. I think they were in Seattle. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then they were near um, there, yeah. Joe comes home one day. He was yeah. probably like 12, 13 years old. Something, and, yeah. And the, the, uh, the family car is packed. Yeah. And, um, his dad walks out to him and says, Hey, we're, we can't make it here. We're going to go somewhere else, but you're not invited. He's like, Oh, where are we going? It's like, well, you're not going. Yeah. You, you're, you're all grown, buddy. You know, he says something like that. I I just couldn't believe it. You know, so I don't know what the heck this guy was thinking. (sighs) Um, well, he was weak. I mm -hmm. mean, and didn't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, mm. so, and then even even later on, so now, um, you know, he finds his way to the University of Washington. He's, you know, these guys, these guys all came, you know, not just Joe, but but the other ones, they all came from these work working class backgrounds. Almost And it was them. really, really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so for a lot of them, you know, rowing was a way for them to get fed and stuff. <laughs> you know, they were like, yeah, you know, I'm going to get meals and, and all these things. And um, go ahead. But nobody was as bad off as Joe. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Who had one set of clothes. And he was growing, you know, he was at that stage where he's just growing so fast and mm-hmm. he never had enough to eat. And he would tell, this was one of the things where I'm just like, oh, it was so hard. Where he would take the leftovers off of people's plates. And mm-hmm. at one point, his teammates turn around and they all have their plates and they're making fun of him. And he, he's like, oh, what am I going to do? I need the food. So he takes it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I was like, you guys, you can't see this. But, you know, this isn't the nicer, kinder, you know, s- nice people shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But you know what? They're just normal people. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody was seeing it and making anything change. And mm-hmm. so Joe's doing this and he has his own inner demons. And at the same time, we're starting to see the coach's point of view. Because mm-hmm. the coach is, um, he's really got a mandate that he needs to be beating Cal. Mm-hmm. He's been hired for that. And he needs to hang on to this job. But also he's a very good coach. Yeah. But he just can't put it together. Right. I mean, everybody pretty much agrees the team they wind up with by the end of the book is the perfect team that you probably could never do again. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that really interesting. Um, I, I liked, you know, the, the parts about the coach and what he was thinking of. You know, I, I don't know. It, it would take a, a pretty the – guy, the guy wasn't flawless, let me just say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he – what a tough deal, you know. So um, I think I said earlier that there was, you know, eighty or hundred people that would show up for this. But but when he first took over as coach and he was, um, you know, making them work and and trying to figure things out, um, a lot of people would drop out, and he yeah. actually felt good about that, <laughs> you know. Uh, as in, you know, these are these are people that we didn't they didn't want this for the right reasons. So or hard uh, enough, yeah. yeah. Or hard, yeah. They they wanted it for for reasons of like social. Uh, you know, nowadays it'd be like, oh, I'm doing this so I can post this on uh, <laughs> on Twitter, <laughs> you know, or whatever. So, you know, so people think I'm cool. That's what I'm right. trying to say. Um, but those people didn't last. So he was left with um, a pretty good group of guys, and then you know the decisions that he would try to make. You know, to who's going to be in what boat and everything. I found that really interesting. And, you know, he, he would basically be watching them, trying to figure out who can work with the, the other people, you know, uh, who responds well in this boat. Uh, some of the things that happened later that was interesting, you know, with Joe, um, but we'll talk more about that. But, you know, they, he'd move Joe to a boat and the boat that Joe came from slowed down. <laughs> so he'd put Joe back in there and it would speed up, but then it would slow down again. 
Yeah. You know, then Joe, Joe would was, mess stuff up. <laughs> yeah, because Joe was having trouble. You know. Yeah. But, um, but it was Joe. Joe was having trouble letting go. Right. It, you know, they, they yeah. talk about you know when you're in the boat, you got to not think about stuff and all that. But yet these things were going on in his life that were just tough. You know. Um. With, with yeah. you know some more on that Thula thing, you know, so he's he's in the University of Washington, and he goes to visit, you know, his family, and Thula won't even let him in the house. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, they were there, and they never told him they were there. He found out from yeah. his brother. Oh my gosh. His older brother, because mm-hmm. he, when his mother died, there was an older boy and a younger boy, and he was the mm-hmm. younger one, and so the older one's grown up enough to want to help him some, and. He can't help him much, but he'll do what he can, and he worms out of the brother that, oh, they're right here. Mm. And then the thing that got me is Thula just was not a very good mother. She was obviously selfish and whatever else, because at one point, much later, um, he and Joyce, his girlfriend, who, oh, I love Joyce so much, <laughs> um, but she, yeah. they go to visit or the father does the father say we're going to be gone so you could see your siblings anyway they yeah. maybe they just go and see the siblings i can't remember now and the parents have gone off for the weekend and left them with almost no food and they're all young yeah right and so thula and joe don't have much money but they go buy them some groceries and everything mm-hmm. and i'm like so they're not even taking care of their own kids and they find out oh this has been happening oh man yeah a lot mhm you know yep yeah, it's, it's completely. Yeah, which is just amazing, you know. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just, it just, it's just incredible. Yeah. Um, but then, um, yeah, but but she wouldn't even let him in the house, you know. Uh, it was it was his dad, you know, and he goes to, to see his dad at his dad's work, you know. So his dad's right. getting off a shift, and then you know, uh, it actually there's some language in there that was really touching about how. You know, the the dad didn't know when he saw his son, he was like, is he mad at me? Uh, you yeah. know, he was really worried that, you know, Joe was going to be mad. But the thing is, Joe wasn't, you know, I mean, he, he, it's hard for me to explain, but Joe was not like, you know, I am going to be furious and I need to tell you how much I dislike you right now. Mm-hmm. He wasn't like that. In fact, Joyce got mad at Joe because Joe wasn't getting mad enough. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it was like, how can you not be upset about this? You know, but Joe was just like, well, it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I don't know any different. But he was also still dealing with it inwardly. Cause that's part of what his problem was in mm-hmm. rowing. And so finally the coach asks George Pocock, I think to mm-hmm. kind of talk to Joe a little bit. And so he'll invite him up to, oh, do you want to come up and see the boat I'm making? Do you want to? And they'd they'd get to where he'd kind of help him around the shop a little bit, and Mm -hmm. they'd have a chance to chat. And as they would, George could kind of lay some pieces of wisdom on him as it seemed appropriate, and he'd learn a little bit more about Joe's incredibly hard life. Yeah. Because, you know, you can be happy for the time you spend with your father. I mean, not that he was jumping up and down, but that's why he wasn't being angry at him i think mm-hmm. is because this is what i can get right right you know yeah so it doesn't mean it's not internally hurting you exactly and then later on even later um you know thula passes away mm-hmm. and joe and joyce are right there yeah like we're, we're gonna help you know yeah just amazing i mean I, that, that guy's a saint he was, well, and also Joyce, too, because yeah, she Joyce was too. so mad at mm-hmm. Thula, and she'd look at that household and see what hadn't been done and the way the kids were and everything. And she's like, but you know what? That's not what they need right now. These mm-hmm. kids, all they know is they've lost their mother and they're suffering, and so I'm just going to be here and help them. Yeah. Because she was there for Joe. She saw right. what Joe had gone through. They'd met relatively young, and then he's abandoned, and he goes back to the old family homestead where they couldn't make it work, basically. And which is a smaller town that's outside of uh, the college town. Mm -hmm. And he's having to do things like, you know, hire himself out to local people. And he's uh, poaching salmon and stuff like this just to stay alive. And he's got to earn money for college and everything else. And so that's when they could spend some time together. Mm. And she 
her determination was no one's ever going to hurt Joe like this again. She was his protector, essentially, yeah. in a feminine way. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. Yeah. That's that like motherly that quality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, which you can still have from a, this is how couples take care of each other. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, they were in love, nice. but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. They're in love, but she's a motherly person mm. as you need to be if you're going to be a mother at some point. Yeah. And that means you take care of people. I remember Hannah uh, recently read the book called Being Mortal. I don't know if you've heard yeah, of this book. Yeah, Atul Gawande. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Have I've you read it? it? I've read it, oh, okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it. But, I've read all um, his books. I really like him. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's someday I will read it, and I think she's going to have our book club read it. But anyway, uh, so one of the things she keeps saying recently from it is that She's like, oh, yeah, this person's got a problem because he's only got sons to take care of him in his old age, not women. Hmm. And that's one thing the author says is your chances of having a a good old age and and living well are better if you have a woman in the family. Because (laughs) women are the ones who take care of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, wow. And Joyce is kind of that, Mm -hmm. she's the epitome of what Thula should have been. For sure, yeah. Yeah, she's like the opposite of Thula. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just like Joe's the opposite of his father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing, you know, and and I, you know, you're right. It's it's a it's a pair, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you know, Joe's influencing her, and uh, vice versa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As it yeah, should be, right? Yeah, isn't yeah. that how it should be in a marriage? You mm-hmm. you both have your weaknesses and strengths, and you work together to help each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what's what makes it um, more than a partnership. Of course, there's also love. Which right, is what motivates right. you to do all those things. Yeah. 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 Amazing. So, um, but yeah, so that's Joe. You know, eventually, of course, he ends up in the in the varsity boat. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, and more about the coaching and things. But um, I just thought that that was, that was fascinating stuff, you know, but I like those kinds of details and things, you know, like how things work. <laughs> um, <laughs> but some of that was... Uh, I don't know if you felt like it was too much, but I, I really liked, um, you know, the decision-making and stuff that went mm-hmm. into that. And even, you know, the, there was this this difficult competition amongst these teams, you know. So at the at first, you know, and this, this probably would have been 1934, um, Joe and his team were in the freshman boat, right? Yeah. And the freshman boat was the one that wowed everybody at their big competitions you know they would they would win by like several lengths right. it was like effortless <laughs> in fact they said you know when the news you know this stuff was covered by newspapers right they were you know just like um like you said major sports today mm-hmm. <clears throat> but um they said that these guys weren't even breathing hard at the end yeah um they were sitting upright they weren't hunched over they were breathing easy yeah not not a problem and and they would win by just a huge amount and um, that was just in that first year. And then the second year, you know, the coach starts messing with everything, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, they're not in the freshman boat anymore. And um, it was interesting that in that year, in the 1935 year, the coach outsmarted him himself and made a mistake, right? He ended up promoting the wrong team and losing, again, to Cal. Well, but the problem is, I can see this though because, for one thing, if the some of the if the boat is too new, mm-hmm. that's not what you do. And he would have competitions to see who should do it. Yeah. And the problem seemed to be that, and, and the author, I don't think the author ever specifically sums it up this way. But what we could see is, the freshman team or Joe's team would do really well, and as soon as they're kind of lauded as being on top, they don't do as well anymore. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they had to be the underdogs to really accomplish anything. And that's not specifically how it was, but I felt like every time the coach made those decisions, I could really understand why he did it. Yeah, that's an interesting you know? perspective, you know, uh, of them needing to feel like they're going uphill or something, because that's actually how they raced at the end, too. Mm-hmm. It was like they liked to race from behind, which means yeah. let everybody else spend all their energy. And then we're going to turn it on at some point and race from behind. That was their strategy. And remember that yeah. one. Yeah, because what they do is they let their boats, certain boats would shoot out fast. 
and get tired out. Mm-hmm. Other boats would, once they kind of establish this, is we're just going to very steadily row at a pretty good pace, but not, you know, to be up front. They had conserved their strength. And eventually, people, other people see this and start doing the same thing. Then it comes down to which team is the best, which coxswain is reading it best, and all this stuff. And you've got a real horse race going mm-hmm. on. And I still remember the account of one of the earlier races where it was the first time maybe they'd done this, and it was on the East Coast in mm-hmm. one of the really big meets. And they let them get something like four, five, six lengths ahead. Yeah, yeah. And then Bobby hits it, mm-hmm. and they just start going. And he'll and he by this time, this is also an idea of how skillful the author is. By this time, you know when he says they're doing thirty six strokes now, and you're <laughs> like, oh, not thirty six. Oh, good lord, their hearts will burst. I mean, you yeah. really know what it should be. Uh-huh. And um, mm-hmm. and so you're watching this. And I mean, that's even the one where maybe um, the coach is going, I can't even talk right now. Luckily, he didn't talk much, but he's just sitting there going, oh, Bobby left it too long. What the Uh hell is going on? And um, they just zoom right by everybody. Mm -hmm. And it, but it was so dramatic because you're wondering what's going on now. Yeah. And they, but they would even have, I mean, to give the, you have to read the book to really get the idea, but they'd have grandstands built, they'd have special trains. That mm-hmm. would go along the side of where the race was so you could be even and watch the action as it's happening. And people would pay top dollar for these things. Mm-hmm. And there'd be drinks and refreshments on there so they can watch as the race is happening. People are on bridges. There's a certain bridge that when whoever goes by who's first, they set off a certain number of bombs, so to speak, <laughs> uh, to to let people know what's happening. I mean, it, you get the crowd feeling, too. So you're right in there with the crowd getting yeah, all excited sure. about it. Yeah, 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 and it was very well written. Every every one of those races was just well written. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so yeah, the the uh, the Coxum, you know, that that was good stuff. You know, <laughs> he was like, all right, you know, he'd lie sometimes. Yeah. Okay, guys, no, you, have, you have one length to Cal. Give me ten big ones or whatever. You know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the ten big ones. Yeah, give me yeah. ten for this guy, ten for that. Yeah. Or whatever, and um, you know, he's he's like, yeah, we're we're like four lengths behind. But yeah. he, he he knew the team so well. He knew what they were capable of, and they right. would just run it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then they'd win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just awesome, just yeah. awesome. And then they go into a slump. Yeah. So try to go crazy. <laughs> For sure. But it was never described as everybody felt so good they didn't feel like they could practice. It's just like you kind of had to pick that up yourself the way the coach did. Mm-hmm. And that right. was kind of the good thing about the um, the way the book was written. Yeah, yeah. You're following everyone's progress as you go. Right. And it was also a really vivid picture of America at that time, and I might have said that already, but because Joe is one of the poorest, you're seeing his personal plight. But every so often the author will pull back and say, so here's how things were. Everybody was making it. It was okay. This happened, and then the Dust Bowl. Mm, yeah. He describes, you know, a big big storm came up, picked up all this black silt, dropped it in Chicago, and that was the beginning of the Dust Bowl. And yeah. then he describes what's life like for the people in Seattle. Seattle? That's where they were, yeah, right? Yeah, Seattle, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, so then you'll get the stories of maybe some of the families of the other kids who you haven't really gotten who – they're doing okay. Mm-hmm. They're not bad off, but they're not rich. And so the one family who the father gets, there's no business for a year because of this. And he finally says, okay, I'm going to go down to the beachfront and start a, a farm, a little, you know, uh, just grow our own vegetables. We have to eat and I'll sell extras. And then the city says, oh no, we need this beachfront to be beachfront. Mm-hmm. So now what do they do? Hmm. And so you keep following this through and you can see the progression of hopelessness and hard scrabble life that comes to practically everybody. Yeah. You really get pulled into the feeling of the country. I think it, you know, this is a good book for inspirational reasons, although they're not hammering you with those. Mm-hmm. But it's really a good look at what our country went through. And what produced some of these people? They talk about the greatest generation, and that was World War II fighters, I yeah, guess. Yeah, which, which these guys would have been, right? Right. 
So, yeah, well, or, um, yeah, exactly that or people who are just younger than them. So these are the hardships everybody went through that honed them into being who they were, mm-hmm. both character and physically. Yeah. And I, I watched a, a little talk given by this author on YouTube. Oh. And um, somebody asked him, he was just in a bookstore. And mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the talk, somebody asked him, did any of these guys serve in World War II and were they in Europe? <clears throat> and he said that, no, actually none of them did. Because most of them became engineers at the end, and they worked for Boeing. And oh, okay. so the country needed them to keep doing what they were doing. It was more important than than going into service. Mm-hmm. And um, then he said there was two, two of the guys, and he didn't name the names, but one of them was in a merchant marine, and another one was in a service. I can't remember which one. Mm-hmm. But neither of them saw combat. So okay. none of them ended up in Europe during the war. But I and thought that does, was interesting. Yeah, yeah, he does have a, a bit at the end where he talks about them becoming engineers mm-hmm. and what else they went on and did. But mm-hmm. one of my favorite things is he pays tribute to the whole country, essentially to the character and what we're talking about. The author actually gives tribute through these young men to the average American who's gone through all this. Mm-hmm. And he says, standing there watching them, because he's watching, the author is watching young rowers, current rowers in in uh, Germany where they had, in Grunau, mm-hmm. where they had the competition, the Olympic competition. He says, it occurred to me that when Hitler watched Joe and the boys fight their way back from the rear of the field to sweep ahead of Italy and Germany 75 years ago, he saw but did not recognize heralds of his doom He could not have known that one day hundreds of thousands of boys just like them, boys who shared their essential natures, decent and unassuming, not privileged or favored by anything in particular, just loyal, committed, and perseverant, would return to Germany dressed in olive drab, hunting him down. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And it's it's that quality of American character that was forged then. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and two things occur to me, of course, thinking about this is one is we've had it so easy. What is it that forges our character? Sure. Yeah. And then the second thing is thinking of Jesus saying how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. <laughs> and I think it's the same kind of thing if you're not forced by circumstances to have hardened your muscles, virtuous muscles, regular muscles, whatever, are we really going to work as hard as we should at it? Because, you know, it's easy to to think you've done enough until yeah. you're pushed to yeah. do more. That's, that's such a great point. Yeah. Yeah, because we really, yeah, we really have had it easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, my life certainly has been easy oh, yeah. compared to most of the stuff that we read. Well, and even in the way they had to do some of the projects they were doing, they talk about Joe and a couple guys he meets while he's out there who are crewmates working on the Grand Coulee Dam in the summer. Mm, And they're doing it to earn money for school. Mm. But they are describing the job they're doing, which is a dangerous job, but they've got the muscle for it. And it's, of course, building more muscle that they'll Mm. use on the crew, but also the circumstances out there. Yeah. There's no air conditioning, you know, <laughs> they're sure. getting fed, yeah. which is something big, but You're making me think of my grandpa and his brother, you oh, know, yeah? they were both in New York city. Uh, my grandpa was, I guess you'd call him a digger. So he was, he was involved with like the Lincoln tunnel and things like construction oh, crew. Neat. So yeah. he would dig. And then his brother was the opposite. He was, you know, you, you've seen that picture of the people sitting on a beam in a skyscraper eating lunch. Yeah. He was one, he's not in that picture, but he's one, he was one of those guys. Oh, That okay. was his job, you know, so, but, um, but yeah, those guys worked hard. Yeah. 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 Built the country, right? Right. They built the country and at the same time built their own character. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. And now you think of the scandals of rich people paying for their kids to have an easier way into college or whatever. (laughs) And that's, of course, happened throughout history. Mm. But Mm. a lot more of us are, you know, wealthy and entitled than maybe we think we are. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's a tough, it's a tough reality about politics, I guess, is, you know, every, everybody's like, you know, well, what can I promise or what can we get through to make life better for everybody? And, you know, that's their proposal and what they push, you know, and everybody comes up with these different things and, um, you know, they they just kind of push that way and that way and the more that way, you know, and, uh, that's just the progression of it, I guess. And these guys had no help. Yeah, none at all. And you know what? <laughs> they were amazing. <clears throat> you yeah. know, I, I just look at Joe. He's just such an inspiration. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because, and it's not to say that people didn't fall through the cracks. That happens. But I would say, unfortunately, we're never going to have heaven on earth. And that happens now. Mm-hmm. It happens all the time. We try to help and not have it happen. But what builds character also is when you are able to fight back from that. Because mm-hmm. yeah, like you said at the beginning, Joe could have given up. Yeah, it's like... Uh, I don't know what would have happened to him. Maybe yeah. he would have died. <laughs> it's funny because it's funny how things come together. You know, uh, uh, Game of Thrones ended not too long ago. I'm not going to talk of anything specific, but but I had <laughs> I had a lot of a long talk with a, a couple of different people about how making a decision that that um, it's almost despite your circumstances is mm-hmm. what is inspiring. Yeah. Right. You know, so, so Joe is that it's, and, and that's not what happened in Game of Thrones, by the way, <laughs> but making a decision, I've heard that yeah, making yeah. a decision that, that, that transcends or, or, uh, yeah, d- despite is the right word. Just despite of all of the reasons you have to make the wrong decision, mm-hmm. but making the right one, despite that is what's inspiring. Well, yeah. I just finished reading the Lord of the Rings. Oh, Jeez, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So I've heard that that's kind of the opposite of Game of Thrones and yes. how they handle decision making. Absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so it's always at the idea, it's often, let's say, mm-hmm. at the idea of my personal sacrifice is given for the greater good and often for the weaker and lesser. Mm. And that's actually what winds up being very redemptive about for the story, yeah, <laughs> for yeah. for the way things go. And um, mm-hmm. I've heard Game of Thrones is the opposite. So it it definitely is. Yeah, and, and, that's it, and it really too was. Bad. You know, I, I have actually haven't seen most of the show, but I've read uh, the first few books. But um, mm-hmm. it was that way from the very beginning of it. And that's so. sad because mm-hmm. if you've got everyone's attention. Is that the story you want to tell? Yeah. It's I assume it's a bit of a dog eat dog sort of a certainly yeah a message in mm-hmm. the end if it's the opposite of the Lord of the Rings and and what does that do to our national psyche if this is the story that we're absorbing? Yeah, yeah. Because the stories that we're told become part of us. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I'm with you. I agree. Yeah, and that's <laughs> and why then, Joe's story is so different. Yeah, it is. It's just so inspiring. You know, he 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 has every reason to make decisions that harm himself, mm-hmm. um, or you know, just just don't, you know, to to be part of this team to make the decisions and and be as dedicated as as you'd need to be to be part of this and to succeed. Um, it just seems unlikely. For that person to be able to do that, but instead he did it, and uh, yeah, yeah, he overcame, and that's He's that's resilient. inspiring. Yeah. Well, and also it's another interesting point to me was what kept getting emphasized was how physically grueling and exhausting and painful mm. rowing was. Yeah. So these guys are all vying to do this, and it's something that is so difficult. But yet this is their goal. Right, right. And it's it's only just those very rare moments when you get, as George Pocock calls it, swing. Yeah, and is, I loved that description. You know, like when they when they hit it. No, uh I don't think I have it in front of me. Oh, okay. But the uh if you do, please read it. No, I don't. But the uh um just the the idea that you you reach this perfection and then everything becomes quiet and all you can hear or, you know, just the oars, you know, sliding into the water. Mm-hmm. But they, they, they reached it. You know, if they can reach it during a race, no one can touch them. 
Um, and, uh, that was described in one of the races that, you know, they hit it and it was just like, it was almost like the coxswain didn't even need to say anything anymore. You know, just everything was just quiet and, and they also, beautiful. one night when their crew has been like put together, and so this is a big milestone, I think they take the mm-hmm. boat out on the water, don't they, at night? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they also have that swing happening. Yeah. Yeah. They're rowing out there and under the stars and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, especially beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, here it is. It says, when you get the rhythm in an eight, it's pure pleasure to be in it. It's not hard work when the rhythm comes, that swing, as they call it. I've heard men shriek out with delight when that swing came in an eight. It's a thing they'll never forget as long as they live. Hmm. And then there are other quotes about the swing and what it does and how you feel, but that's just that description. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we haven't talked about the, the very end. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the big race at the end. Oh so there is, you know, they get to the Olympics and that was fun, uh, to talk about too. So they, you know, they, they win their, their heats and everything, uh, in the United States. So they're selected to go to the Olympics in 1936. Right. And, um, it, it was cool. Cause what, uh, the United States got this, uh, cruise ship yeah. and put everybody on the cruise ship and they sailed across the ocean to Germany. Um, that was just uh, awesome to think about, you know, all these mm-hmm. teams and everything on there. And, you know, so their boat was packed in a crate and, and, you know, they're there while they put it away and they're there when they take it off, you know, oh, be careful with it and don't touch it. You know, some longshoremen, they were, they were describing in Germany, they're taking it off and they're like, no, don't touch that. <laughs> we got what? it. We got it. We'll carry it. Yeah. We'll it's carry fine. it. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, and then just the, the story of the trip over was fun. Yeah. Um, you know, what their life was like, you know, they jog around the deck, you know, uh, they had weeks, you know, I, I can't remember how long it took, yeah. but they couldn't row during that time. So, um, you know, they, they do what they could, you know, try not to put on too much weight, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, with the food and everything and jog around the deck and just basically, you know, everybody's just having a really good time on the boat. And then they get to, um, England, or I'm sorry, into Germany and uh, one of their guys is sick. Um, his name is Hume. And yeah, he's, he's, important. he's important because he sits right in front of the coxswain. And he's the guy that all the other guys look at for their pace. Yeah. So um, the coxswain talks to, to Hume directly. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, it's amazing how it all works. But everybody's watching the guy in front of him. To, you know, and, and trying mm-hmm. to match their their right. pace and everything. But the guy's ill. He's got uh, a lung infection, um, you know, some kind of a bronchitis or something. And um, that had, I can't remember the exact detail, but it had something to do with how hard his life was too. Something that had happened to him in the past mm-hmm. sort of caused this. Um, it, it made him susceptible to uh, to lung issues. Right. Um but anyway, so they they race their first heat. You know, they put Hume in the boat and they race their first one and they win it. So they get the day off and the next day. And then the day after that's going to be the big race. And they actually broke the, the records. They broke the Olympic record and the course yeah. record. So they have the best time of, of everybody. And then and the Germans um, and Italians have the worst times. Yeah, the Germans and Italians have the worst times. And then the way it was described in the book... You know, so the coach goes over to there after the that second day's races, which he did not have to participate in because they already won. Um, he goes and gets the looks at the lane assignments, and yeah. they're the exact opposite of the way they should be. And uh, the the way the author described it is they were using a new formula, <laughs> huh. and uh, yeah, that's the it. the formula they wouldn't you know it was a complicated formula or something to determine that. And then he said, and now, you know, looking back on that, people doubt that there was actually a formula at all. Um, but what ended up happening is Germany and Italy were given these lanes one and two, which were, which were actually a huge advantage because they were protected from wind, uh, hugging the coast, like the one and two. And then England and, um, I think it was Switzerland, 
is that right? No, Britain was next to the United States. So Britain and the United States were five and right. six, which were the worst lanes. And the United States was in six. And in fact, when because when they very first saw the racing track, they said uh, they started protesting and saying, really, nobody should use lanes five and six ever hmm. yeah. because the wind in them is so bad. Mm-hmm. That you can't get a fair um, race. Yeah. And they're like, oh, no, no, this is just how it is. Too bad. <laughs> so then when they saw they were assigned to that, they're like, oh, oh, I see how it is. Mm. And plus, then when they, um, the starter does it, he doesn't go through the usual sequence. Mm-hmm. So only the people next to him can tell he said go. So the Germans and Italians start and everybody else is like, whoa, what happened? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And he described I that mean, in there too. Is like the guy comes crazy. out with the flag. He said it, he turned to lanes one and two and whipped the flag and off they went. And, and lane six, they didn't even have any idea that the race had started. Yeah, because so, usually you you check and make sure yeah. everybody's ready, and they didn't do anything. And they didn't they do were that, so they're sitting there uh, motionless while everybody took off. Yeah, and uh, that was amazing. So you've got so Hume at that time is very very ill, and now that was an interesting thing too. So the the coach said we're going to replace him. You know, he just can't do it. We're going to replace him, and the other guys all said we can't do this without him. For for you to replace him just means that we're going to lose. So even if he's sick, we need him in the boat. Because I can't, you know, the coxswain was like, I can't possibly establish what I've established with uh, Hume with anybody else in time for this to be effective. So Right. And Hume was game. Hume was game. Hume wanted to do it, even though he was very sick. Almost dead. I felt yeah. like there's one point in that race and I'm like, they never say what's wrong with him later, I think, because they probably never knew, really. Uh-huh, yeah. But I was just like, oh, I think he's died. Yeah. And he he's, he's, he's 15 pounds lighter than usual. I mean, yeah. it's just not, yeah, it's just bad. And the noise is so bad mm. that you can't even hear the coxswain. Right. So it all depends <laughs> on him and Don Hume. Yeah, and that was, that was amazing. Yeah. So... But the the author did such a beautiful job describing this race. It's just seared in memory. Oh. And I listened to the audiobook. So Yeah, um, it's an amazing audiobook. It's just terrific. It's so good. Yeah, so very well done. So they're rowing along, you know, once they get started, they're rowing along. And uh Hume just kind of goes into this trance and he's looking at the floor. So he's not even looking at the coxswain. And the coxswain would yell at him and nothing would happen. Yeah. And I loved that he the coxswain was like he they're 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 so far behind at this point. Um so they're fighting the wind and racing the other teams. They're like four or five lengths behind. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Okay, it's time for us to do something, but he couldn't get Hume to respond. So he was just about to start to talk to the guy behind Hume. So he was standing up to try and get the other guy's attention. And when Hume kind of popped up his head and, and looked yeah. at him and said, what are we doing? <laughs> he gets back to life. Yeah. He's suddenly, you know, back to the present, right? Because uh, he was even, had a piece of metal in his hand. He was hitting the side of the boat with yeah. it. Yeah, because when he, they hit a certain point in the, in the course where the crowd was right next to them and just yelling, you know, Deutschland, Deutschland, and they couldn't hear. Yeah anything so he started to uh communicate by tapping the boat yeah um, that that was just awesome. i have chills just mm-hmm. thinking about it that was just such an amazing piece yeah. of writing how is this not a movie yet i wonder <laughs> you know i thought there maybe was a made for tv movie maybe kind yeah. of thing. well there was a documentary oh maybe uh, that's what you I'm know a pbs of. hour mm-hmm. but there wasn't not a movie that i know of yeah, you feel like you could really do it. Yeah, you would really do something great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but they end up winning. And and this is right in front, like you said, of, of Hitler and all of the upper echelon oh, of the Nazis yeah. were there. And they were describing, you know, they, they had won five races that day, Germany. And yeah. this was the big one. You know, this is mm-hmm. like the Super Bowl, the, the one that they wanted most. And then to sit there and watch the Americans come from behind and, and win... Uh, the yeah. book says he turned around and walked out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because when they're talking about getting an idea for the Olympics, which Hitler had to be talked into, mm-hmm. 
uh, we haven't really talked about this whole parallel story, which is not really parallel because it's just told every so often. Mm-hmm. But the efforts that went into the documentaries, all the the techniques that were used to show Germany is wonderful. And before the Olympians get to the town, they've changed the town around. They've put mm-hmm. foreign books back in the bookstores. <laughs> they've gotten rid of people like, you know, all the gypsies and things. Yeah. They've checked all the prostitutes <laughs> and turned them loose for the boys yeah. and this kind of thing. And it's, it's so everybody's walking around going, wow, this is really great. Yeah. So the whole thing mm-hmm. we know now was one big PR campaign, but nobody then knew it. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody yeah. then really knew what to think of Hitler. Yeah. The author said, you know, most of the Olympians came home thinking Germany was pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why would you not? Yep. For yeah. sure. So, um, it's, as it is now, Germany is cool now, right? Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. But that was, you know, a, a massive um, piece of deception. And so, reading when you read about the, um, oh gosh, I can never say her name, but the documentarian, mm, yeah, yeah, and all the techniques that she came up with to show. You know, um, like, you know, digging holes so that her cameras could see the feet of the people running by. And she was so innovative, but this was the only venue she had. And I I say that and it makes it sound as if if only she could have gotten to a free country. No, she was happy where she was. You know, she was just thinking about what she was doing. She wasn't worried about the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting to to see just that she was even there uh, because she's a controversial figure among people who study film. Hmm. Kind of like D.W. Griffith and Birth Mm -hmm. of a Nation. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Where everybody goes, ugh, the movie he made. And and other people go, yeah, but Mm -hmm. the techniques he came up with. So it's, you know, nobody is 100% one way or the other, essentially. Mm. But, yeah, so the whole look at, at Nazi Germany and you just, you know, you know, that they've got Jesse Owens coming, so that's a good thing. Mm. You give him a black eye, but then this, yeah, yeah, being even bigger, right? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I liked too is the way that the author ties in this whole book with that idea I read earlier about here are the uh, the regular Americans who you don't care about Hitler, and they're going to come for you mm. because this is what our American national character is at that point and what we can do with it. And he, uh, before, right before the chapter where he's saying, oh, they came back, here's what happened to everybody. Mm-hmm. And for the epilogue, I guess. Yeah. He, there's a quote from George Pocock, which says, harmony, balance, and rhythm. There are the three things that stay with you your whole life. Without them, civilization is out of whack. And that's why an oarsman, when he goes out in life, he can fight it. He can handle life. That's what he gets from rowing. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that there's a lot to that. You know, I'm uh, thinking about my own life. You know, do I have anything that's even close to this? And the only thing I could think of was um, was theater. You know, mm. when uh, I can think of a one play in particular where it was just like everything seemed to be perfect. And I was in the sound booth, right? It was uh, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we, we had one sublime show where everything just went perfectly. You know, all of the actors and all of the tech crew and everything just was just worked together in harmony and it was awesome. And yeah, man, you come away from those experiences really just um, amazed at possibility, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the only thing that I have that I could, I could point to that would be even close to this. Yeah. And I don't have anything. I know somebody at the book club said, I've never been part of any group that's like this, who Mm. achieves that, you know, that oneness. Yeah. And, um, they asked, has anybody been part of anything like that? Yeah. And all that happened was everybody went around the room and said, no, because I've never been a joiner. No, because, the, and I'm <laughs> like, that wasn't what she asked. We mm-hmm. all know that. We all know these things about ourselves. Yeah. Sometimes though we're lifted out of it, like you were by the theater thing, mm-hmm. by other things. And I haven't had that either. Yeah. It's that, it's that trust thing where, you know, the actors are trusting me to, to 
hit the music or hit the lighting or to give them what they need. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trusting me to do that, you know, and all the other actors are trusting the other ones to make sure that they do their thing so that they can do theirs. You know what I mean? Um, so it, it is similar, but, um, but not yeah. as tight as this, not as tight. That's the thing. I was just mm-hmm. thinking when you were saying that, I was like, I guess in a small way, it's when I work on these beyond Cana retreats mm-hmm. or, um, yeah. when we put on the chirp retreat long ago mm-hmm. where, because you're all having to work together, but you're all having to trust each other and trust God and what's going on. For sure. But it's yeah. not the same thing. That's the closest I've gotten. Though. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you're right. It's not the same thing. Yeah. But there, there's similarities, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you're yeah. looking at, uh, you know, and, and I think about God too, you know, the, the unity and diversity of the Trinity, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, the, that, that's what it is. It's like, you know, God is the a community. You know, in yeah. a way, and uh, you look at that, and it's just like, wow, you know, that's amazing. You know, a community know working in unison, all rowing at the same time. Because they're each, they're each, it's the same exact essence with the mm-hmm. same exact, the will and everything, but the three persons who are the community. Right, right. Oh my gosh, my head. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, but that's a good mm-hmm. analogy. The yeah. crew team, the rowing team. It's beautiful. It's just a mm-hmm. uh, uh, very beautiful thing. And for them, it's always, they're always swinging. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's fun to see success like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you chose the book. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, I, it's just terrific. I found out, well, in fact, I knew this already, um, but uh, in my town, uh, Logan, Utah, the universe or the Utah State University does a, a group read every year. And this oh, was uh-huh. the book last year. Oh, really? I need to participate in those. <laughs> yeah. It's like all the incoming freshmen are supposed to participate in it, and then they open it up to the whole community. And wow. then they'll they'll have a speaker come. And I don't know, I'm assuming that the author came and yeah. gave a, a talk, you know, at the, you know, whatever venue they, they're using. Um, yeah, that would be something to keep an eye on, definitely. Yeah, yeah for sure. But every year they, they come out and, you know, so when I went to the library, I wanted to get a hard copy. So I went to the li- I have it right here. I went, I went to the library and they had like five copies, <laughs> you know, it's because of that, that event. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and there's also yeah. a version of this that's been adapted for younger readers too. Oh, really? That's nice. Yeah, it's got a, instead of kind of a golden cover, it's got a blue cover. So you okay. have to be careful because some people, when our book club did it, they're going, well, this is only this many pages. And everybody else like, no, 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 you got <laughs> the wrong one. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, there was an interesting aspect for me, too, as I was reading it. You know, this is history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was talking to a historian one time. And he, he was complaining about some book, and he said, you know, every single thing that's in a history book needs to have a documented reason, you know, for being there. But this guy's writing style, you know, he would talk about, like, this guy was feeling this, and, you know, it mm-hmm. was like fiction almost, where, you know, uh, this was his motivation, or, or this is what he was feeling in the moment, and the guy yelled this, and... You're like, wow, yeah. how is he getting all of that? You know, is he filling a lot of stuff in or not? But the the uh, the end of the book actually has a ton of notes where he got stuff. Like there's a little, you know, it's like chapter 13. You know, this epigraph is taken from here. This is that, you know. So it's really, he did do a, a stunning amount of research for this. And I'm trying to remember if it's this book or if it's a different one where they said full bibliography is online because it would be so big it's too in this big, book. Yeah. Wow. And um, I thought, oh, what a good way to do it. They had Mm -hmm. essential notes, and that's why I was saying it might be this book. Um, Yeah. Okay, it says, the original manuscript contained well over a thousand end notes. Wow. So, what follows is a much condensed and incomplete version of those notes. The full notes can be found at his website. Yeah. So, So, uh, here's something here. It says, you know. The psychological importance of having Don Hume in the boat can't can't be overstated. All the boys brought it up when they talked about the race in later years. Al Ulbrichson is quoted as saying after the race, when Don came back, they simply decided nothing could stop them. In Alan Gould's Huskies, it's revealed, all but ready for sick beds before the winning race, (laughs) which is the name of Uh. a book. 
you know, that okay. was written in 1936. So he is, you know, he's, he's, it's all there. Yeah. Yeah. That's neat. Well, and you have to read all that stuff, I guess, just to get a sense of what you're even talking well, about. But he put cool. this together. Yeah. And yeah. it's such a, a well-told seamless story. And like I say, I really, once I got to the end or to where they're going to the Olympics, I'm like, Oh my gosh. Hmm. He's done this because now by the time you get there, um, Joe is part of the team. Mm-hmm. He's not thinking as an individual anymore. He's not feeling alone. He understands what he's representing and so do they. And it starts to tell it from the team's point of view. You almost never get Joe's point of view again, mm-hmm. at least during that time period. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Just awesome. Yeah. Love it's it. Really Very inspirational great. book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you said, you know, you love all those kind of details, and I do not, but you know what? The way I read this book in hard print first, and then I listened second to the audiobook, mm. both times I just gobbled it up. Oh, that's great. It's just very mm. engagingly told. You I bet. can't recommend it. I want to know yeah. how the bridge is built. <laughs> <laughs> and we passed a bridge. And by the way, it was built in 1937. Yep. You want all the end notes. <laughs> Bridge. Uh, I love it. You and my husband. Yeah. <laughs> that's good stuff. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> like I say, I feel like you guys would be best friends. I think so, too. That's oh, great. <laughs> cool. Yep. All right. So what is okay. coming up now? I think we're Something going back to Bollywood. Yeah. Rob Nibana de Jody. That's how I, we say it. Oh, great. <laughs> any Indian person is probably cringing, but I probably don't have any listening, so we're okay. Oh, I love it. I know I told it to my doctor, Dr. Singh, uh-huh. who's totally Americanized, never watches these movies, mm-hmm. doesn't eat Indian food. I'm just like, you are wasting your heritage. <laughs> and I said, like this movie. And I said, Rob Nibana de Jodi. She goes, you said that just like I do. And I was like, there's no need to insult me. And she just starts laughing. <laughs> she goes, my mother would love you. And I went, probably. <laughs> She'd want to cook for us. Oh, that's great. Uh, that's anyway. great. But Fun. yeah, so... This is a movie with, uh, I didn't plan it this way. These mm-hmm. just happen to be three movies um, since this is the third one in our Indian trilogy that mm. has um, something to talk about. And this is the third of the three cons. And this Excellent. is Shahrukh Khan. All right. And as we've said before, we're talking King Khan here. So, All right. Yep. I'm looking forward to King Khan. Oh, my my third con i love it i think you're gonna love it i'm really excited about this one that's cool that's great very excited (laughs) well you're you're at least a good liar we're very excited i'm gonna go very excited no i am this is gonna be fun i've enjoyed the other two very much very very much so (laughs) cool all right well thanks for listening everyone yeah we'll talk to you soon okay bye-bye bye